I am here to talk to you about the future. Witness relocation program. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to your future. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Cami Chaos, and this. And I am Rick Tarosi, and this is mildly interesting people. Why are you shaking your head already? Did I screw up the intro again? You, yeah, you screwed up the handoff. You oh. It's okay. Let's go All with right. it. Maybe we'll fix it in the future. <laughs> Maybe. Or in editing. One of the two. But the <laughs> uh, the role of Cammy and I as mildly interesting people is to find far more interesting people in our lives that we get the chance to chat with and share with you. And so we do our due diligence. We do our work to find you the most interesting people we can find. And I think we've done an exceptionally good job today and cammy who is our guest by do the work to find i think he means <laughs> hey cammy can you text that guy we know and see if he wants what? to be on the show that's work thumb work i did i had to use my thumbs and i had to type mm-hmm. and i was like oh hi how are you doing i can't remember what i said at all but i did it with my thumbs anyway We're going to talk to this guy, all right? But before we get into this guy, I want to tell you, today's a very special day. Today's May the 4th. Now, we're not recording it on May the 4th, but we're pretending that we are. As you can tell by my beautiful hair and our guest's beautiful futuristic ray of light that's just slicing it down. So, (laughs) my lovely viewers and guests and wonderful people, may the 4th be with you. And now I will introduce you to our guest. He's fancy. (laughs) Um, I don't know what else to say about that. He's a fancy dude. And Mm -hmm. we can probably ask him anything we want to, and he'll answer the question. And I feel really weird because I'm not sitting in his living room right now, drinking like a drink that he made for me or a coffee or something. Uh, So this is awkward. Not because of him, but because of, this is not what we normally do when we hang out. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to my super fancy friend who's like a writer and a futurist and a public speaker and who knows fancy people and does fancy things. Um, our our friendly futurist, Brian David Johnson, who goes by BDJ. And that's the first question I'm going to ask you. Brian, why are you BDJ? Well, <clears throat> It might um, surprise you that my name's Brian David Johnson are some of the most common names of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and so I grew up with a plague of Brian's, a plague of Johnson's in every single class I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of us. And so when I went to the Intel Corporation, where I was their futurist, and I was coming into the company, they said, what would you like your email address to be? And I said, how about Brian.Johnson? And they said, great, kid. <laughs> we've got about 100,000 people. We have 49 Brian Johnsons. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, cool, 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 cool. I said, how about so Brian, not that. Johnson? They're like, cool, cowboy. We have 29. <laughs> <laughs> Narrowing it down. Narrowing okay. it down there. And Getting so closer. How about Brian.David.Johnson at Intel.com? And they said, oh, that works. That, 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 who would ever have an email address that long? This fellow right here. And so it was yeah. fine. And so for the longest time, because I would, again, the, the plague of Brian's, I brought the plague back. These poor guys, they would be these um, engineers who were like bench engineers who were working. And they would get really weird emails. If when you're the futurist for a large publicly traded company, like tech company, <laughs> you get weird stuff in the mail, like really weird emails. And I would just, they, their inboxes would get blown up. And so I periodically would like buy them coffee and say, I'm sorry. So it became a habit to say, I'm Brian David Johnson. And we would just keep saying that because it also helped just everybody to remember. And also, again, see previous comment about being so common. So it was Brian David Johnson. Well, it's a tech company. So we love acronyms in tech companies. And so people just started calling it BDJ. And people were like, BDJ, BDJ, BDJ. And so for 20 years of my life, I've been BDJ, BDJ. And that's how I got here. Well, BDJ, welcome to Mildly Interesting People. It is a pleasure to be here. Two of my most favorite people. I think he might mean that. I love it. Um, there are so many directions that we could go that I feel like I'm in an, an a 
a choose your own adventure novel that wasn't edited very well, because there are really so many places that we can go. But I'm going to start, I'm going to start with my introduction to you. And then we'll move on from there. We'll talk about like the interesting stuff, the fact that you're like a professor of futurism and a futurist and a writer and a public speaker and like a confidant to amazing humans all over the world. But I'm going to tell you that before I met you for the first time, after I had already known your lovely spouse, I was talking to someone and they told me, oh, he's so pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I was like, oh, that sucks. That's really going to, that's going to really impact me negatively because I love his wife. And when I say I love his wife, I mean, like, she's a part of my gooey center. I'll see her tomorrow. It'll be beautiful. Um, also, noting, you're the first spouse of a guest who's been a guest on our show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was emotionally prepared for you to be a pretentious jerk. And then I met you. Brian David Johnson, were you pretentious when I met you? don't think so was i you were not you were not you were not at all you are literally one of the least pretentious humans i've ever known in my life um and so what i really want to talk about is something that i know rick and i struggle with uh public persona versus who you are as a human because we all have masks that we wear and you genuinely are one of the funnest nicest kindest most laid back humans I've ever known, unless you're not drinking water and then you get in trouble with Brian, you do have to hydrate. <laughs> you do. Um, <clears throat> is there anything about your public persona that you feel might have warranted someone telling me, oh, he's pretentious? Because they meant it. And I disagree. But are you pretentious at any point? Like, tell me. I don't, I I would hope not. I think for me, being a futurist and sort of doing what I do, it's who I am. It's sort of, Mm -hmm. it's annoyingly who I am. People will tell you that I'm always kind of thinking and talking about these things. And I'm super excited about stuff. I'm a a nerd and I'm a geek and I love diving into things and really like, oh, you like 20th century crime fiction? I can talk about it for the next three hours. Let's go. Hey, how about jazz? Let's <laughs> Let me go. show you my library of 20th exactly. century crime Let's fiction books. <clears throat> and, you know, I, yeah. I'm not, I don't, not that pretentious. You know, again, we're, but I can, I could see when I'm out and I have to get stuff done, especially in the kind of the professional world. I, I'll tell you a story. So I was doing work for an ad agency that will remain nameless, but a very large <laughs> ad agency. And I was there and they brought me in. They want to look at the future and the future of sort of artificial intelligence and what it meant to these products and their, their customers and where they were going. And we were there and I was ru- doing what I do. So I run participatory design workshops where I get people to think about the future. That gives me the raw data to then go and do that. We'll talk about what I do as a futurist later. But so we do it. And but it that comes- was my next question. So we'll get there. Segue. Yeah. So I do it and I just do my thing. I'm just, and I'm, I'm like this all the time. So when I'm on stage, I'm like this. When I'm on TV, I'm like this. And so talking, 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 go, 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 go. A lot of hands that the photographers call me butterfly hands because my hands BDJ are BDJ butterfly time. hands. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> and so <laughs> may the fourth be with you. <laughs> um, so, but at the end of that, they got critiques. And so they're like, how do you think it went? How do you think everything went? And they said, that was great. We really enjoyed it. We got a lot out of it. But we think that BDJ guy, he's kind of mean. Like (gasps) he he works with, I know he works with the military. I know he works with the government, but we just felt he was a little mean. And that was a little weird. (laughs) I was like, what? Like, but so I do, I think, I do think sometimes that that enthusiasm and that pushing and sort of going and being really interested and also being really, um, I mean, I, I am a nerd. And so I get really focused in on specific things that I want to get done. And I'm excited about them because they're freaking awesome and let's go and do it y'all. But I do think sometimes that can rub people the wrong way because, and I try not to bowl over people and try to actually have that empathy and understand people, understand where they're coming from. But I do think sometimes it can be a, it can be a bit much. So I do think, yeah. I can be a bit much sometimes. So in my mental history, I choose to replace the word pretentious with intense. 
because that is, you are, you are an incredibly intense human. That is not to be debated. I mean, uh, debate me if you want to, but he's an intense person. Um. I feel like, did I, in the pre-chat, we discussed that we could ask him anything we wanted to at all because he has had to deal with British journalists. And I feel like, did I, no, nowhere near. No, how, how did, no you were no, great. Okay. It's one of the things Woo. that I do at the end of all of my public talks. So I, as you said, I talk, I get on stage and I'm like this. So I talk all the time, talk to K through 12. I talk to students, talk to trade associations, talk to people all the time, talk to scary government military folks, all fine, right? <laughs> and, but at the end of all of my talks, there's the section is called ask me anything because people can totally ask me anything. I've done this for over 25 years. So like being mm -hmm. a futurist for over 25 years, by the way, may the fourth be with you. After doing this <laughs> for 25 years, people have asked me everything. Like people mm -hmm. ask you crazy stuff, nutty stuff, like stuff. And I take it all serious. So they're like, Tell me about the zombie apocalypse. Like, okay, I actually know. Oh, we'll get biologists. there. We, we can talk about the zombie apocalypse. I can tell you. We'll get there. Like but you and your partner are my number one draft couple for the zombie apocalypse in case oh, you don't already right. know that. Oh, yeah. We've, yeah. yeah. I we're, know you are. We also yeah. live in, yeah, sometimes a rural town. So we're rough and ready. We're ready yeah. to go. So, mm -hmm. but also people ask me, I build robots. So like, when will the robots rise up and take over? And I, I have a job. And my favorite one is I was in uh, the Winooski school up in Vermont, which is a, a school for refugees and people who are displaced. And I was there talking to a group of 10-year-old boys. And I don't know if you've been around 10-year-old boys, but they are genetically designed <laughs> to not hold still. They get the wiggles yes. and I get it. I'm like, I totally understand. And so- Butterfly uh, Hands Johnson, you get oh, it. Oh yeah. And so <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I get it. And so I'm talking about the future, that they're the future. They're the ones who are going to be able to go through and do it, just doing my thing. And that's say, You can ask me anything. And so Leroy stands up right away. Hand goes up and he's like, BDJ, I got a question for you. I'm like, okay, Leroy, what's up? And he's like, so I want to know how to build a Death Star. Mm, like, good question, mm. Leroy. Yeah. He's like, oh, okay. So you want to build a planet-sized, planet-destroying weapon. Mm -hmm. I said, he said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, cool, 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 cool. Why? And he looks at me with intent. He goes, because it's cool. <laughs> like true all right it is cool Fair. and then basically yeah. i said so you want to build a planet-sized planet-destroying weapon where do you want to build it and i said take out your your pad of paper and he take that all the boys take out their pads of paper and i was like where do you want to build it do you want to build it like right next to earth like do you want to go out towards jupiter like how what do you want your commute hmm. to be because the commute might be mm -hmm. really far and then they just started like drawn and they're like i said because we need to talk about something we need to talk about mass and gravity so like mm -hmm. if you build a planet Next to our planet, this is going to be a problem for both planets. And they're just, and so I basically gave them a physics lesson on mass and gravity and what happens with gravitational mm -hmm. forces. And they were writing. And after I was done, the teacher came over to me and she's like, I've never seen them sit still that long. <laughs> so that was my favorite about ask me anything so i'm always i always love it like it's always fascinating that's also why i've written some of those books that i've written is because people have always sort of asked me really really interesting questions and i love them so no mm -hmm. you really can't ask me anything we're gonna we're gonna talk about some of those books but before more than i want to know what a futurist does which we will get to i want to know why why how how just who, when, why, what, where, all of the questions. How did you become a futurist? It, it's not like when you're in school and there's a career fair, there's like a futurist there with a table. He's like, be a futurist with me. Oh, well, how, how did you even conceive of this? So the, what I love about trajectory, like, if there was a table that had futurists. So my brother, <laughs> who's very dear to me, my brother, when I told my brother, I was appointed the chief futurist at the Intel Corporation. He was like, okay, great. So you do know in the movie, when you walk in the room and go, hey, I'm the futurist <laughs> at the Intel Corporation, he goes, you know, you're the villain, right? Like, you know, everybody now knows you're the villain. For oh, sure. Right. And no. so I was like, I thought it was kind of cool. Tell you through that, I was like, that's it like a Tyrell cool. Corporation. Tyrell Corporation. Yeah. Ooh, change of <laughs> Wow. Now it, feels, now it feels more intimate. It does. Like we have this now, yes, nice mood lighting. May yeah. the force be with you. We've The force is now outside. Now <laughs> we can actually get, we can get real and get personal. So yeah, I, what I, I would tell you two things. Um, so how I became a futurist 
there's sort of me personally, the personal story, and then the, the professional story. The personal story, I would say, is I was born a futurist. And I say this only because hmm. I, both of my parents were engineers. So my dad I'm was- gonna, a I'm going to pause you for a moment. If I didn't know you, and like sincerely know you, and I asked you how you became a futurist, and you told me that you were born a futurist, I would probably say you were pretentious. But because I know you- that's the least pretentious thing you could say. Please continue. I just wanted because to because of my parents. It's also it's because yeah. of the I am. Your in parents awe are so lovely, by the way. I am Your in awe of my amazing. parents. My parents made me. I owe everything to them. And it's so my my dad is a Minnesota farm boy. Grew up with nothing. Uh, became a radar, joined the army. Became a radar tracking engineer and ended up like working on the <laughs> top of mountains during the Cold War basically getting ready for the nuclear strike. Like that's what my dad yeah. did. I would go visit my dad at work. We would go up hairpin turns on the top of ancient mountains and there were no call boxes. If you wanted dad to come out, you threw rocks at the radar. And it hit the side <laughs> of the radar and this huge door would open like, like at a NORAD. And my dad would be like, hey, and we'd be like, we brought pizza and we'd run in. So like I grew up in this world, you know, granted I grew up again, I'm a child of the seventies and eighties. I grew up in, in the cold war. It was not a matter mm -hmm. of if nuclear war would happen. It was when, and right. then my dad had all these computers around him. So that was my dad. So that was like going to dad's work. That was like that. And I would, yeah. Oh, I would actually play cause I was a big video game kids. So, um, Dad had the radar, so he's tracking for the FAA all the flights that are in the Washington, um, Washington D.C. area. So he mm -hmm. would disconnect the radar, and if everybody remembers, remembers Missile Command, so Missile Command in the arcade yeah. was a big black ball, and you would go and you would you would basically mm -hmm. blow things up. I did that with the radar airspace. So dad would <laughs> disconnect it so I could go. I was blowing up like real planes, not really blowing up real planes, but was yeah. like playing around on the radar. So this to mm -hmm. me was normal. That was normal. And then my mom was an IT specialist and an engineer when women weren't supposed to be engineers. So my mom we're still kind of not supposed to be. People still don't like that. Well, yeah. in case we'll, we'll, you, we'll, I know you live in the that. future. We can totally but, get into that. We can yeah. totally get into that because yeah, that's a big deal. So my mom grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Um, her dad died in World War II. She had to fight to take typing in high school because they're like, women don't take typing. She had to mm -hmm. fight really hard and she fought her entire life. She's got multiple degrees now. She's now retired, of course, but became an IT specialist that actually worked in the Fairfax, Virginia area, like running whole things. I would be like talking to my mom when I was up in college, calling from New York. I'm like, hey, mom, how's it going? She's like, oh, good, honey, what's going on? And we'd be chit-chatting, and then she'd go, oh, shoot. And she didn't say shoot. <laughs> she didn't say shoot. She oh, said, you can oh. say shit. And you can say goes, shit here. Like, it's okay. Mom, mom, what's up? And she goes, oh, I got distracted with you here. I had paused all the print servers in the D.C. Washington area. <laughs> in, and, I was like, and I was like, mom, you probably shouldn't do that. And she's like, oh, no, honey, it's fine. <laughs> so these are my, like, this is normal for me. Like my mom would bring home computers. I grew up with computers. So that was sort of normal. And then I was a sci-fi nerd. And so mm -hmm. to me, those two worlds had always come together. And so when I was 10 years old, I started taking computer classes at the community college because I wanted to learn Fortran back in 1982. My parents didn't mm -hmm. know what to do with me. So they sent me there. And so I spent all my time either in the library or I worked in the computer lab because I understood personal computers. And I was at 10 teaching people how to use computers. Like, oh, here's how you use it. Here's this weird kid, usually with a sci-fi book in my hand, like talking about computers. So I, when I say I was born into it, like that you were. The world, I, I thought all that was normal. I did not know that that mm -hmm. was not normal until I moved to New York City when I was 17. And people were like, what did you do? Like they had, <laughs> that was so bizarre to them. Like, like my dad, like people have, some people, their dads have like wood shops or they, they have, they, they go on hunts or they do whatever. So it, no, my dad, we built a large, a, a big flat screen color TV in the 1970s in the wall in the basement. It was a Heath kit. I grew up mm -hmm. with a soldering iron in my hand. Like that was normal. Everybody built TVs. Yeah. Why wouldn't you build TVs? That's what you do. And so I think for that, that's why I say, and it's a, it's a tribute to my parents. I mean, again, if we talk more about my parents, I'm going to start to cry, but they're awesome. And so if we from, talk more about your parents, I'm going to start to cry just from the one time I've met them. They're, they're just, so uh, yeah. And I just saw them and they're doing great and everything's wonderful. So like okay. that's the world Good. I grew up in infused also mm -hmm. with sci-fi. And so in that I'd always taken 
storytelling and engineering and building things was just normal and, and talking to people about it, explaining it was just normal. So that's kind of for me. And it's always been like that. And I still have flashbacks to when I was that 10 year old kid walking through the library, like looking at stuff and talking to people. How I professionally got there was because I had this wildly multidisciplinary education where I could study economics and I could do engineering. I could study art. I could study all these different things. I could study acting that I had this really broad-based background, which you kind of can't get now. It was so big that when I started going back and then I did systems engineering because most of the work that I did was around systems engineering, I could understand these really complex systems and understand not only how they worked, but also the politics that went to it, the policies that went to it. And that's really where back in the 90s, when people figured out you could take a, a cable box and plug a, a, a telephone cord in the back of it and it made it interactive, and so all of a sudden it was interactive TV and it took them three to four years to design, develop and deploy those. This is where the professional side comes yeah. in. And I could do yeah. that. I could do the hardware, the software. I could understand the politics. I could understand what's going on. And so I was doing that. And we did that for a while in like Scandinavia and Europe and fun stories about the genius ideas that we had about the future of television, which is very laughable. But then that's where then <laughs> Intel came to me and said, hey, you can do three to four years out. Could you do 10? Because we have this crazy idea that you've been talking about that people could use the internet to watch television back in the early 2000s. And that was- <gasps> We know, can. Nobody. And we do. It yeah. turns out it happened. Yep. It turns out it happened. So that's so how I, I got a, there. I, I feel like I should let Rick ask questions at some point, but I'm not there yet. Uh, sorry, Rick. Rick, yeah. so, ask a Star Wars question. And, and I was born us, the year that Star Wars came out. I'm just saying. That's, that's because, my claim that, to fame. That's because you're beautific and perfect. Uh, which is the best Star Wars movie? Oh, the first one, of course, because it's the the reason. And by the first one, you mean Episode Four that was renamed later. So the and the only reason I say that is the probably the best Star Wars episode is the one you saw first when you were a kid. Mm. That's the thing is that when you enter yeah. the when you enter the Star Wars universe, I mean it is it is so encompassing and it's so comfortable and it's so interesting. That. So because of because of my age, Return of the Jedi was my first one that I actually retained and remembered. And I went back hmm. and watched the others. And that, that was amazing. But yeah. Well, yeah. And like Return of the Jedi is, is weird. I mean, it's a it's a it's a really odd one. And then when you go back and you like you watch the first one in the, the release, you you see the seams, right? You see the things that's not great mm -hmm. about it, but it doesn't matter. You're like, that's it was so different. And you think about like when that was released and what all the other movies looked like and how fundamentally different it was, but it did look like a lot of the goofy 70s sci-fi stuff that was out there, but it was so different in what, it, in the, the, again, the architecture and the engine that the story was running on. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty awesome. And the fact that they filmed it, you know, filming in the desert, filming in all those places. I mean, now I don't know if you sh everybody should go and, and do an internet search on those places because they're still there and they're just amazing. But Rick, you have to answer me a question. You have to ask me a question about Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and I, you know, like you, was just enamored of not only, you know, War Games and Tron and all those, but like, Star Wars was definitely a, a game changer for me as a kid. Um, as as the author of a book called Vintage, Vintage Tomorrows, like w talk to me about the the like just the situation that I think sometimes folks forget that Star Wars is a very technological historical picture like it happened long ago like and 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 long, i think long the ago. other i think the other part far away far far away <laughs> to somebody who grew up in a you know a a rural upbringing like like luke it, it was a it was a farm kid who had mm -hmm. access to all this technology like just i just want you to it, there's not even a question there i would just like you to riff on that a little bit about like how that impacted young technology or young futurist BDJ, hoppy technologist, and just what what was the effect of of that particular film for you I in nineteen seventy seven? I think it showed 
the reality and the grittiness. I think that's the thing around. I mean, granted, it always starts with the starship. It always starts with that. But then you go down and, you know, you're, you're down on the, the desert planet and it's nasty and it's, there's like stuff mm-hmm. blowing and, but there's still robots going around and still going and doing stuff. It's not super clean. Like when people look at, and when you see people who show you pictures of what the future will look like, they're always sanitized and the robots are also, they always look like humans. They have a human face or that. It's always ridiculous. Yeah. Why does that robot look like a human? Like there's no reason for that robot. Now C-3PO should look like a human because he was a translator. That makes perfect sense. But like, mm-hmm. why should R2-D2 look like a human? There's no reason for him to look like a human. And so for me, it, w- it actually felt real because you put them in a real setting and it was dirty and it was odd, you know, like, you know, let, let's go to Empire Strikes Back. Like they're slitting open tauntauns and going inside and being in a tauntaun. I mean, like, mm-hmm. What's technological about that? That's gross, but we all think about it. What's all the, the time. core temperature of a tauntaun? <laughs> that I don't know. It's lukewarm. Ah. Yeah. Give your bartender, everybody. I'll be here all yeah. week. So I think it's so much, and even if you think about Jedi, like you think about the ending of Return of the mm-hmm. Jedi, right? We're in the jungle. I mean, you can like or not like the Ewoks, whatever you feel like about it, but like, you're in the jungle at the end and we're like, yeah, we're celebrating. And we're like in an Oregon rainforest, basically. It's like yeah. the way that they would set that, it was very realistic and maybe not mm-hmm. so much from a historical standpoint, but that's kind of like you mentioned vintage tomorrows about steampunks. It is that intersection. It brought humanity and it wasn't this thing that was yep. super streamlined, super sterile. I mean, I always joke with people. What I love about, you know, humans is humans have hair. Like, we all have hair. Some of us have hair in different places, right? <laughs> but like we all have hair and we're messy and it's we're kind of gross. And those those movies that kind of bring that in kind of show you where technology can sit in a really different place than in mm-hmm. some of these like super streamlined ones where it doesn't have any humanity to it. And that's what I think is so exciting. And for me, aside from all the, the the universe and how everything is built out and all the backstory, and again, again, we can talk about good sci-fi and bad sci-fi, by the way, Star Wars is a great way to talk about good sci-fi and bad sci-fi, but it's still all good because when you watch them, yeah. you're just like, wow, yeah. that makes no sense. I don't really know what's going on there, but it's really mm-hmm. fascinating because it still does. I mean, it's one of the things. So one of my, um, uh, there's a great book called Make It So which is from um, these two authors who were looking at the images that are in interfaces in um, um, sci-fi movies. And mm-hmm. you could look at the images that were in, say, the, the for the Jedi and the Rebellion, and that they were very human-centric, the way that they had people. And even in the later movies, they like would would have the holograms of people when they were in the different councils and they would be the right size. And then you go to like the dark side and you go to the emperor and it's just like a big head. And it's it's just like, Oh, that's messed up. That's a big head. Mm -hmm. And so there's like a language that's going on in these movies, even in sort of the, some of the special effects, which I think from a, like you said, Mm -hmm. from a technology standpoint and somebody who grew up loving technology, that it taught you a language that wasn't one-sided that it really was centered in humanity, whether that be good humanity with the Jedis and the rebellion mm-hmm. or with the, with the emperor and his big head, like both of them were really kind of interesting. Yep. Yep. Well, and I love that you, you touched on this earlier, but like I will always, you know, I suspend my disbelief relatively well, but there's always some point in the 200th watching of a star Wars movie where I'm like, that's actually someplace on earth. Like they didn't do that with special, that's a place, that's a place on planet earth. Right. And like, so you could go there and like you said, you can look at it on Google maps or whatever, but like they, like they, they did not distort reality to the level that it made it completely unbelievable. There were some very realistic elements to it. Well, and here's the thing I think, so it's Tunisia. So they were in Tunisia. Yep. And by the way, I was looking up the authors of Make It So, so I can tell you that in a minute. So cool. it's in Tunisia, right? And so you look at that. And when you look at those images of Tunisia, you're like, oh my gosh, could in a galaxy far, far away, long time ago, like, oh my gosh, like 
it could be real. I think that's some of the things with the the later alien pieces as well, where all of a sudden, mm-hmm. right, you're seeing, and even some of the, the newer Star Wars ones where you're seeing like crash technologies in these worlds and they're just there. Like that's just normal mm-hmm. and that would be there. Mm-hmm. You can begin to see that they really are placed in a, a place of humanity, in a place of living where it isn't just all streamlined. It isn't just everything's the, the same. Yep. Yep. I, I think part of the reason that I appreciate there, there's a, a, a theme. Rick will ask me how many of a movie, how many, how many movies there are in a set, how many Indiana Jones movies, how many Star Wars movies, um, and my answer is is three. It's always three. Uh, but I, I think that's part of it for me. Part of what keeps it so authentic for me in the original movies of the Star Wars trilogy is that they were filmed in locations, and as a child. I would go like I would go to the coast and visit my grandparents and they lived essentially in a pine forest. And I would pretend that I was Princess Leia talking with the Ewoks and hanging out on the giant logs that were hollowed out. And it just seemed so tangible and realistic to me and making, making the setting so tangible and realistic made everything else about the movie seem like it could be possible as well. Whereas you look at, uh, Star Trek, as an example, the later Star Trek's not necessarily the original one. Everything is pristine. They work so hard to keep everything clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nature is isolated in a pot somewhere. Uh, and it, it just doesn't have the same feeling or the same sensibility. It doesn't have the same authenticness. Yeah, I think especially the early Star Wars, but even some of the, the later ones like with Rogue One and things like that, they're funky. They're just, they're yeah. sci-fi that's funky. I mean, it's got humans, it's got funk, it's like that. And that's what they're meant to be. Whereas you take something, like you said, like Star Trek, which I'm also a huge fan of, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to do something right. wildly different, right? And right. and like even comparing the two, I have, people are like, are you a Star Wars person or are you a Star Trek person? And I'm like, well, I'm you a can be geek. Both. So like, <laughs> both. like, come on, y'all. There's not a lot of us. Let's get together now. But yeah, I, I do because I do, but I do think it, it is that reality, that kind of funkiness of, kind of where, and you even think about, yeah, like when, when uh, Skywalker is with Yoda and like all the stuff that's going on in that swamp and that type of stuff, it mm-hmm. is, it's, it, they, they lean into that. They like really are yeah. into that type of funkiness of that, uh, that surrounding. And I think that mixed with, you know, the X-Wing and bringing the X-Wing up and it's all messed up. I mean, that's a perfect example of that versus the other, all the other ones where it's just like, no, no, no. And by the way, it works. We make it work. So that yeah. I think yep. is a, a great example of it. Yeah, and you touched on like I think Rogue One. I'm really glad you brought that one up because I thought that was really so true to the original film in just its setting and and but it also brought some new things to be like it it took the the robot attitude to a whole new level in terms of like personality and humanity being embodied in a in a mechanical being which was just super super interesting for that film yeah and even as a story what i liked about rogue one right is is that it's it's this it's the story of people you would never hear from right it's like right it's like the it's like the sci-fi you know novel red shirts right where it's just like it's all the it's the story you don't get to Mm -hmm. hear it's the stories on the peripheral and Yep. You know, I don't want to ruin it for people, but they all die. Like it's that <laughs> what? What? Oh my god. That's so weird. Oh, so red sh- red shirt, the the red shirt, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Star Trek. And world. so you yes. can for me when people are are um going through and being um and sort of making fun of the universe and the Star Wars universe and where it's done and all the different things that it's going, mm-hmm. to me it's reached that point where you can get back to your point at the beginning, good sci-fi and bad sci-fi, you can like The Mandalorian or not like The Mandalorian. It's a bit like Quantum Leap. But, like, it's still interesting. Like, it's still <laughs> right. fascinating to watch yeah. it. And it's and, but, but then you take something like Rogue One, which is this little nugget that lived on the side and that nobody told mm-hmm. that story. And that story, that story got told. That's why I brought that because I just, I just think it's fascinating. I want to go back to little 10-year-old Brian David Johnson hanging out in the library, everyone else around him named Brian. Mm. Uh, he didn't know he was going to be a futurist yet, but he was already a futurist. What did what did little 10-year-old Brian David Johnson think the future was going to look like, and how close are we? 
to me, it was filled with computers. Oh, no, I've got it. No. Woo. So, okay. No, no, because I'm trying to think. I could tell you, well, I thought about computers, thought about that. But no, I had an mm. actual moment. I, I want whatever this is. This is a defining moment. No, this is huge. Back the year is 1982. Uh, we are in Virginia, rural Virginia. And so mm-hmm. I'm working in the computer lab, taking classes in Fortran, learning how to program, reading my sci-fi books. And this movie comes out in the Manassas, Manassas, Virginia, mall, back when malls were a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was super excited because across from the movie theater was the Aladdin's Castle Arcade. And then next to the Aladdin's mm-hmm. Castle Arcade was Roy Rogers. Basically a trifecta of perfection for a 10-year-old boy, right? Mm-hmm. So you can get your roast beef and your, and your strawberry shake, which I did. Go into Aladdin's castle, playing video games, playing video games, and then it's time to watch the movie. What movie are we watching? Tron. War games. Oh darn! War games. <laughs> war games. I was like, war I was like, games. it's either Tron or War Games. War it's going to be one the, of the I two. Mean, uh, Tron yeah. is a close second, but here, but here's the thing to get to Cammy's question. So, like, okay, I'm I am lit up. Like as a ten year old, I'm probably levitating. Mm-hmm. I'm just like making my way around. So I go in and we watch War Games, and so I'm watching War Games. It's about a hacker, young boy. It's like all my things, mm-hmm. all the stuff. Like I had used the computer that he's using. Like this is the world that I was in. And then, this is not going to spoil anything for anybody. If you haven't seen War Games, you should see it. But the artificial intelligence, they didn't <laughs> call it the artificial intelligence, but the artificial intelligence was called Joshua. And so it's all about games, stuff like that. And he sort of understands the history of Joshua, how Joshua is tied to um, Hawking. Um, his dad. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so important to understand the human connection in that. And it's a, it was his son and his son died and it sort of turned him into an artificial intelligence and he's sort of living in artificial intelligence. And then it ramps up and he gets to know him and he's playing games. And so as the crescendo goes up. Would you like to play a game? I'm going to throw up. So my Roy Rogers roast beef, my strawberry shake, it's about to come up. <laughs> I need to, I need to get out. I need, I'm, there's too much tension. There's too much going on. I leave the movie theater. This is the weird little mm-hmm. kid that I was. I just, I left the movie theater. I went out in the lobby and I had to pace. I had to mm-hmm. walk it out and I was just walking it out. And again, I always like, I wish there were security cameras. Like, who is this kid? I'm sure I had a Star Wars t-shirt on. <laughs> like, who is this kid? And like, I'm just walking by myself, working something out. I'm working it out. Mm-hmm. And then I, because I was so worked up. And then I went back in and I watched the end of the movie. I missed a little bit of it. And it was only later when I would, would tell people this story that they're like, oh, the, the drama and Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy and like what's going on. And by the way, there's a parallel. If you look at the, the scientist, the computer scientist, what he did with his life and what I've done with my life, it's pretty mm-hmm. creepy, the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. I realized that why I was so upset is I wasn't worried about Matthew Broderick or Ali Sheedy. I was worried about the AI. Yes. I was worried mm. about Joshua. I really was like, mm-hmm. this thing to me is so interesting and actually, but it's an amplification of humanity. It's not this cold, dark thing that is trying to kill us all. No, this is an extension of a dead man's child that is now instantiated into this thing. And he's having a relationship with Matthew Broderick. To me, that was I thought about sort of the future and it really has driven so much of what I've done. Like that connection to me, there was no, any, there's no difference between technology and humanity that it, they were completely connected and that, that technology was always an extension of our humanity, just like Joshua was an extension of Hawking. It was just, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what I thought. That's what I thought the future would be like. And yeah. And I've, mm-hmm. I pretty much always stuck with that. And how does it compare? I think we're getting there. I think we're not there yet. I think the thing for me that I've done as a futurist and a lot of people say, you know, I'm a technological futurist. I come out of Silicon Valley, I have a background and do a lot of work with governments and militaries and things like that. But to me, I'm, I'm a futurist. It was, the, it was actually the sci-fi author, Cory Doctorow, who said, you know, you're yep. a futurist who's a technological futurist, but you always are more interested in the people than the technology, which is 100% mm-hmm. true. That to me, it's always about the technology and the work that we're trying to do because we always have to keep humans at the center of what we're doing because if we don't, we're going to be in real trouble. Um, and that's, that's still the thing that drives me today and that will probably take me in the future to the end of my career. So by in trouble, are you thinking, are we talking like Terminator kind of stuff? Is that what you're thinking? 
It if we don't, I, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, I, I too am very, uh, I work in technology and the important part for me is that we realize the human connection, technology, everything we do. So AI is terrifying to me and exciting to me because, uh, I don't want to forget about the humans. <laughs> I want to, uh, intensify, increase, promote, make better the human experience, but also leave room for this other beautiful technological advancement. And so with that context, please continue. Well, and what I would say to folks, the, the short sort of pithy end is like, so if we don't want to forget about the humans, don't forget about the humans. Again, technology doesn't get to decide the future. We get to decide the future. We're the ones who are in control. We really are. And I think one of the things that does worry me about the future, so being a person who does do threat casting, who does do a lot of dark work about the future, which we can talk about later, people say, well, what worries you about the future? And the mm -hmm. only thing that worries me about the future is when people give up their power. When people let other people or let technologies decide their futures for them, because that doesn't end well. We know that. We've seen that in all of history. And so that always kind of worries me. And so I always try to get people to say, well, let's let's actually take control of our future. Let's work together and build the future that we want. And so when it comes to things like AI, oftentimes I think what you see as people go, you know, zero to 60, I would say, you know, you went from, you went from apocalypse from a zero to 60. Like people go, oh, we've got generative AI, we've got chat GPT and we're all dead. Yeah. Like right. people talk right. about that and I understand because sci-fi teaches us to do that, but it doesn't work like that. Like technologies and the way things happen, they don't really work like that. They do if we just let them happen to us, if we're not active in it, like you said, Cammy, if you're not saying this is what I think the future should be like, that becomes incredibly important. And so for me, as I start to think about AI and those things, to me, they're just tools. You know, a tool is just a tool. A hammer is just a hammer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't get to do anything. A hammer is only interesting when you use it to build a house. But at the same time, you can't build a hammer that is sufficient to build a house that is also not sufficient to bash somebody's head in. But the good news is we're all not walking around with hammers in our heads. Why? Yeah. Because we live in a society that says that's not cool. And we have norms mm -hmm. and we have culture and we have laws that say that's not cool. And so I think that's the thing for us is to say, as we see these new technologies come in and when people come to you, and I've, I've written about this, like if people come to you and start talking about the next big thing and everything is going to change, like don't listen to them. Because if they're mm -hmm. trying to like get you to do something about the future or sell you, but they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to scare you. They're trying to do something. If they're trying to take you, take your agency away, ultimately it's about us. And I think that's, what's really interesting now having worked in with AI and built robots and built AI, but now with chat GPT, but even with some of the machine learning models that we've been going through in the past about five or six years, you really are starting to see industry and people kind of go, wait a minute, we really need to talk about this. And now it's gone in front of, the EU in front of Congress in front of like, there's lots of people where we're actually yeah. starting to do it. And I think that's the, my, my hope is that, and, and my not, it's not a hope actually, it's that humanity is actually a lot stronger than we give ourselves credit for. Uh, you know, every now and again, we're boneheads and we do crazy stuff, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I was, I was, there was a, a, a social scientist by the name of Tony, Dr. Tony Salvador, who worked with me when I was at the Intel Corporation, amazing social mm -hmm. scientist. And he wanted to do a panel on what will happen when the robots take over, not if, but when. And first I was like, that makes no sense to me. But next I said, well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. If you think the robots are going to rise up and take over, you are, are wildly underestimating how nasty <laughs> human beings can be. Like That's we true. are... I can introduce you to some people, some nasty human beings who will really push back on that. And so really, yeah. I think oftentimes we devalue ourselves when all of a sudden we give up these futures to say, nope, it's all going to be about artificial intelligence because it won't. I have a direction I can go right now, but I would love to let Rick be a part of this conversation. Is there anything that this sparks in you that you'd like to talk about? Well, thank you. Um, I think one of the things that I've always been curious about, I've thought about a lot, and I, I, I'm a Libra, so I will argue with myself day in, day out about which, which direction it might be. out loud. But, but there's no one better than BDJ to consider this question and, you know, may not have a well-formulated answer off the cuff, but 
just something I'd like your opinion on. Uh, in the world of science fiction, we go through phases of excellent science fiction and then like some subpar or maybe not so great science fiction. Uh, in your opinion, which actually drives innovation more effectively? Does really great science fiction inspire people to be more creative and innovative, or does really bad science fiction make people say, "Oh, that's close enough. We could get there." Like, wh wh where do you think where do you think that art form influences creativity as far as innovation goes? So, Rick, you're going to hate my answer. Because <laughs> my answer is all of the above. All okay, science cool. fiction. I'm yep. a lover. I'm a lover of good science fiction and bad science fiction. I have a mm -hmm. collection of bad science fiction. All science fiction drives innovation, and here's why: um, because imagination is the number one most underutilized tool when it comes to innovation, when it comes to business. The idea that we value imagination, that imagination is something, because nothing great was ever built by humans that wasn't imagined first. So that right. idea is that you've got to imagine. And sometimes they're really bad. Like there's a lot of really bad 70s and 80s films that were <laughs> awful. They really inspired people, right? And that's sure. okay yeah, because it ignites the imagination. And so when it comes to engineering and business and all the things that all of us work in, it's whatever gets your imagination going. It doesn't really matter. And sometimes bad yeah. is really good, right? And so I think in that way, you know, and we can talk about, you know, as you see these sort of ebbs and flows and, I mean, and what's happened with the science fiction genre in the past 30, 40 years is really amazing. And so how it's really gone uh, quite diverse and depends upon who you are and what you're looking at and what you can actually do now. But I really do think, and I think the answer, it really is all science fiction because, and one of the things I do with companies all the time is I talk to them about innovation and imagination and do you value imagination? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, I totally value imagination. Great. <laughs> right, right, right. Cool. Fantastic. And they're like, I'm like, so you, you, and here's the thing, right? I love asking people, do you value innovation? And they're like, oh, yeah, we, oh, yeah, we totally value it. Yeah, we totally value it. <laughs> like, cool. Okay, great. So now, um, so you value really good ideas. We totally value good ideas. Great. Do you value dumb ideas? Mm -hmm. And then they go, I do. Yeah. They look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, do you value really crazy ideas? And they're like, mm -hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. And this is, I'm used to this. And I'm like, because by the way, a crazy idea is only crazy until somebody finds out it's genius, right? You both know mm -hmm. that. It's just like, that's how it works, y'all. That's the thing. And so it's funny. And what I try to do with these companies in these areas is actually institutionalize it to actually get people to set up like dumb idea funds. I've done this in mm -hmm. multiple places where you put thousands of dollars away so that when somebody comes to you with a stinker idea, you give them a coffee card or you award them something. You're like, that was awful, Betty. I, that, <laughs> I can smell that idea from down the hall. Here's a coffee card. And it mm -hmm. creates this, uh, this culture of people being able to feel comfortable going back, Rick, to what you were saying around good sci-fi and bad sci-fi, like that idea that yep. Ideas yep. aren't bad. Ideas are amazing. And there are good ones, there are bad ones, but you don't really know. But it's that using the muscle of being able to go through and do that. And that's why I really do. I really enjoy hokey sci-fi. You go back to some sci-fi that you're just like, that's just not well written, but I really like it. <laughs> yeah, I really, really like it. And so uh -huh. it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's more of the futurist view of kind of what it is than less of a sort of a writer and connoisseur view. Uh, we can yeah. talk about all the sort of what, what we value when we talk about sci-fi, but I think from a, from an innovation standpoint, I think maybe even it could be an interesting thing. And maybe Rick, you could do this, like get people to read bad sci-fi, like really cheesy sci-fi and see what it does to their synapses. Like actually get them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be it. Yeah. That'd be great. I would really enjoy that. All right. I yeah. want to be super yeah. mindful of the time because we're just uh, sincerely, we could talk for hours and hours. Yeah. And so before I move any further, I would like to ask you to be our resident futurist for mildly interesting people. I'm in sign me up. Yes. Come Fantastic. back whenever, whenever you want <laughs> sign me up. I will talk to you too, whenever. And again, you can ask me anything so you can pull me in for hot takes. So at the end, so Rick is nice. together. be like, Hey, this was interesting. Let's do a hot take with our futurist. they be like, Hey everybody. Yeah. Okay. 
This is what I needed to hear. All right. I want to change paths slightly. And I, I suspect that this is the last direction we'll go before we have to go into mildly interesting questions and wrap up. But uh, we've danced around film movies a lot. Um, so we've talked a lot about the future. Oh, we're, we're going to have to talk about books, but we will. And we will. We will. But first, I want to talk about movies because I know that you are a true connoisseur of movies of all types, especially horror. Um, but I also know that you are a creator of film. Uh, and I want to dive into that. How how does being a futurist and being a director producer? Uh, I mean, are, you're not still directing, producing films, I don't think, but you you did in the, your, your early career. So talk to me about that. I did. So yeah, so early. And so I'm, I'm a writer as well. So I think that that's one of the things that also defines me is I, I just write. I've always written. I think I started in fifth grade. I think my first, I, I actually really do think my first story was about um, Gary the Grasshopper and Linda the Ladybug. That's what it was called. Aww. And I wrote this story about these insects. And so, and so I've always been writing. And to me, the communication of ideas is so important. That's what I tell my students that you can have a great idea about the future, but if you can't communicate it, it's, it's useless. And so trying to get people to communicate. So I've always been a writer and always wanted to be a writer. And to me, that's really kind of defined so much of what I do. And then as I, I was moving through my career and very early on, <clears throat> I got really interested in film. I always loved film. I was raised, my brother and I, you know, again, we grew up in rural Virginia. And so when we got a Betamax, we didn't go anywhere on the weekends. Are you kidding me? It the was Betamax. The, remember with, with the remote control that was wired? Yeah. Right? And so that's what we did. Like all we did, like we would shut all the windows, turn on the air conditioning and just watch movies because we didn't have access. The closest movie theater was over an hour away. And so we kind of got into that sort of language of it. And to me, I'm, when I write, we're going to nerd out for a minute. So when I write, the plots are architectures. So I'm a systems architect. So I write mm -hmm. software, do hardware. Plots are architecture. So how people move through things and you can actually build them out in their architectures. And to me, film became a really interesting architecture. So I had grown up when I was very young, writing novels, writing short stories. But the architecture of film is so specific because it's a product and you really got to get it out. And there's a whole production thing. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely fell in love with it because if you tell me there's an existing architecture that you need to go, there's act one, act two, act three, here's what happens. And again, back to star Wars, here's what happens in the hero's journey. I'm like, give me a hero's mm -hmm. journey. Let's find out what's on <laughs> again, all, you know, again, all good artists and all good engineers steal. So like, let's copy paste that in and let's play with that code and let's play around with it. And so I was always, I was fascinated by that. And so when I went up to, when I went to college, I was able to study. I went to New York City. I went to the New School for Social Research. So I went to New York City. And so I was actually able to study. And like, I had friends at the uh, NYU Film School and things like that. And so I was able to kind of enter that world. And you saw, and it was also the early 90s. So it was the early time when like um, independent uh, movies were like just starting to blossom. And so anybody could make a movie and get it out there. And we did. So we did. So I spent, I had a, a whole cohort of people that I was working with where we made movies like all the time. We worked on each other's movies. We wrote each other's movies. We did that. And it was amazing. I mean, we were young. It was awesome. We were in New York. We were poor. We had nothing else to do. It was great. And so we did that. And that's kind of how I became a creator. And it, it was really interesting to me to kind of go through and do it, to kind of go how you can actually take this idea from your brain and then turn it into something that's not only on the printage page, but is then on the screen. And then you're actually working with a lot of other people to do it. And I'm intensely collaborative. So it's like, wow, I get to work with these actors. I get to work with these technicians, many of whom I'm still friends with, like 30 years on, I'm still friends with who, who we've done this thing before. And to me, it was a, as an art form was really amazing. So yeah, being able to make those and understanding that architecture became just fascinating to me. And I really, really like doing it. And it, is, it is a young person's game. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Um, but it's, uh, it was it was just phenomenal. And I, every now and again, I, um, I'll kind of help folks. So people come to me and uh, they'll bring me scripts. So I, I doing work on the future of TV, as we talked about in the future of entertainment. So I have a lot of friends in Hollywood. And so every now and again, I get a script from a producer who's just like, could you please read this and tell me how the future technology <laughs> is? And I basically <laughs> take me about five seconds. I go, okay, great. It's shitty. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong. You're, That's it's not, not going to be like that. But then what I do, and I've done this for a number of scripts, 
is I've gone through and said, but we can make it happen. That's not a bad thing. So back direct to what you were saying, like good and bad sci-fi. I'm like, okay, well, let's take what you want to get done here. And how do we then come up with technologies that actually might happen? And we could actually mm. make it real because I always want, and this is one of the reasons why when I write the young adult work that I do and things like that, I always want to lean in again. We're, we're here on uh, May the 4th. So like being able to like lean in and go these young, these young sci-fi kids to go, did you like that mm -hmm. movie? Yeah, I like that movie. It's mm -hmm. all real. Like to whisper <laughs> to them, it's all real technology and I can tell you how to make it happen. Like that to mm -hmm. me, like as a kid, that would just be like, are you kidding? So I think that's how we make more engineers. That's how we make poor people who are comfortable with technology, that the difference between engineering and creativity, the idea that engineers aren't creative and creatives aren't technical is completely ridiculous. Like we can break mm -hmm. down a lot of those barriers. And I think sci-fi and stories and especially film can do that. So talk to me about the journey from being a writer, director, filmmaker, futurist, consultant, speaker, and then all of a sudden self-help guru. Because I mean, essentially with the new book, The Future is You, is that, am I the, future the, the right you, title? The Future, the future You. Yeah. The, it, it is, it, it is a self-help book. Oh yeah, very much, unabashedly so. So how that happened, and it's a really specific story. So I have a really dear friend by the name of Leopoldo Gut. Leopoldo is this amazing- Hello, Leopoldo. He's amazing, amazing artist. He's from Mexico City. Amazing artist. He's this accomplished producer, has done tons of different things. Look him up. Amazing writer. And he's nuts. He, I love him as any sort of mad, mad artist that you've ever met. He now lives in Manhattan. He's got a huge studio in Manhattan. You go to it and it's like you're in a movie when you show up and you meet all these amazing people. It really is like, this is not real life. Like I'm, I need to head back to the West Coast. This is not real life. The North, the Pacific Northwest, let's be clear. And so, but I'm there. And every time I was going to say California. No, I know that's what I said. So much real life either. <laughs> Pacific Northwest. Gone. Come on, it's a little bit more real. And so every time I would go visit Leopoldo, much like my brother, he was like, "I think you're a supervillain," and he goes, "And I write supervillains, so like, I think you're a supervillain." I'm like, "No, I'm not. Right? No, I'm, I'm cool. It's fine." And then he would like be like, "Well, tell me about what you're working on." So it's like, "Oh, you know, I'm." And then you realize the words that come out of your mouth. I was like, "Oh, well, I'm working on a project for NATO where we're looking at the intersection between emerging disruptive technologies and weapons of mass destruction." Like I'm Super the worst villain. person to have at a barbecue, by the way. People are like, "What are you working best on?" Best person. It's just like best person <laughs> to have at a barbecue, especially and, if he teaches you his hot dog method. I'm just saying. Yeah, true. Please true. continue. Ballpark hot dogs, amazing. So, um, so he had always we'd always go out, we'd have a drink, we'd have dinner, and he would just he was just fascinated by it, and he and he would use it, and he would kind of pull me into some of his work that he was doing, and he was just he's just a great guy. And at one point, he turned around to me, he's like, "You need to write a self help book." And I said, you're crazy, but we know that you're crazy. So you're crazy. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I know. But you do all of this work for large corporations, for governments and militaries and all that. Why wouldn't you do it for average people? And he goes, stop. He goes, because you care about average people. Because when anybody asks you to talk to them about the future, you do and you stop and you take it really serious. Like you really pause, like when people ask you, what should their kids do? Or what should their next career be? He's like, I've seen you do it. Like you do it with absolute strangers. I'm like, well, yeah, I do. Cause I'm a futurist. That's like my job and who I am. And he's like, why wouldn't you write a book? And I was like, you're crazy. I'm leaving. So left, left. He did this multiple, he wore me down. To the point, because when I was giving a public lecture at a university and a young woman came up to me and asked me about how to get engineering and what she could do, and I would never be so arrogant as to tell her her life. I don't know her life at all. I said, but here's how I think about it as a futurist. And then the penny dropped. I was like, oh, oh I could actually create so an architecture for people to go... Mm -hmm. I don't know your future. I would never tell you your future. If anybody tells you your future, close the door on them. Like, don't do that. But here's how I think about it. And so I embarked on this journey, this, this project called The Future You, which was an experience in terror. Every single chapter was an experience in terror because <laughs> who am I 
I'm a middle-aged futurist white dude. Like, who am I to tell anybody about their future? But I would keep kind of coaching myself from what Leopoldo said. And then in, this, in the book, there's lots of stories from people of being able to kind of help them with their future and was able to kind of put it together. And, um, and then, you know, it came out in 2020. And, uh, you know, a lot of bad stuff happened in 2020. Great timing. Yeah. Mm. And, but <laughs> fine. Again, again, but yeah. Chapter seven in the book is actually about existential crisis. It's about war, hmm. plague, all of those sort of things, like things you don't have control over. And so my publisher called me, HarperCollins. They're amazing. They called me. My publisher's like, hey, man, you wrote a book about the pandemic before the pandemic. And so we had people Futurist. Like, started reading the book. Now, I didn't talk about COVID. I didn't talk about that. But that idea of something that is so much bigger that you don't have control over and how do you center yourself and find your power and find your agency when you live in a world where you don't have control over what's going on around you. And there's really amazing interviews with people like Douglas Rushkoff, who's this amazing futurist who won't call himself a futurist, but great guy who does work with people who are completely down and out. Lots of other futurists who I've met who um, have really done amazing work and who I have like, who literally physically live on the edge of death because of a, a genetic condition that they have. But how do you as a mm -hmm. futurist live on the edge of death? And so I had these people give me these amazing stories as a way to go through and do it. So that's what kind of got me there. And the thing that's just been amazing since it, since from it was now the people who reach out to me, I love it. Like, again, I spend my days doing all this futures work and I have people who send me pictures because in the book, because I'm a professor, in the book, there's workbooks and there's like, you need to do the work. Mm -hmm. You got to write it down. Yep. And like, I have people send me pictures of their workbook. And then I actually had somebody send me a picture on Twitter because they were, it was about, there's there's a chapter on housing and real estate. Like, what do I know about housing and real estate? But like housing and real estate, how do you find your future home? What does that look like? Some really fun stories about this biologist that I did some work with. And they they filled that out. And then they took a picture of their house in rural Colorado. And they're like, mm -hmm. we did it. We moved. Mm -hmm. Which on one level freaks me out. That is freaky. <laughs> no, 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 don't do that. But then it's so heartwarming because they're so happy. And they're like, no, this allowed us to do that. And for me, there's no ego in that. I feel so humble. I'm like, wow, that actually happened. And it's really cool. And they're way into it. And so that was the thing. I It was, it was terrifying doing it. And I, I only have Leopoldo to thank, and uh, hmm. it's it's been fascinating to see what comes out of it. That is amazing. That is a far better answer than I expected. Um, now we're going to ask some mildly interesting questions. These are the same five questions we ask every guest that we have on the show. Eventually, we'll change them up, but uh, we're still going with the first ones. And so I'm just going to ask you, answer them as quickly as you can, but don't feel rushed. They are not May the 4th related. All right. What is your favorite but least useful hobby? <laughs> You're allowed to pass and then come back to it if you'd like to. Pass. We'll he back. will edit. Okay. Would you like to survive the zombie apocalypse? Yes, please. Yes. And you are aware that you and your lovely wife are my number one draft pick. Just so we you know, paint. that's we not a question. Paint. We have chainsaws, we have stores, we have trucks. We're good. Mm. You have the bodega downstairs. The bodega. Yeah. We do. What is the last food that you photographed? Whiskey. That's yes. Good. That's the best answer we've ever had. Whiskey. <laughs> part What's of the, the best? Part of the food groups there, the whiskey. What is the best season? fall again correct uh magnets or stickers stickers mm -hmm. huh i would have accepted magnets from you because you're a sciencey dude uh but stickers is the right answer so, yes. so when i was and last wait before you the last question so remember i told you mm -hmm. back in fifth grade when i wrote um gary the grasshopper and linda the ladybug mm -hmm. it was all based upon a sticker Huh. It was a sticker of a grasshopper and a ladybug. And my fifth grade teacher said, here, and put it on the top of the, the ruled paper and said, write a story about the sticker. Interesting. That's a great nice. prompt. That is a good, I like that teacher. All right. Your last question is also your first question. What is your favorite but least useful hobby? This could also be a whiskey answer. 
It could be a whiskey answer. I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you your wife's answer was making spreadsheets. I do so from a hobby standpoint, they're so specific. And so <laughs> I think this says that as a futurist, I probably work too much. That it's pretty much that I'm like, what do I do when I'm not? Um that's fair. Like one of our guests said, What's a hobby? Like she just like everything. Yeah, that is, was her answer. Super, what is a hobby? Super passionate about everything. But I love my hobbies. So like you know, mm -hmm. reading, hiking, walking, like all that. Like, are you kidding me? That's like, no. Um, whiskey. 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 <laughs> whiskey is the answer to all of our things. Whiskey. <laughs> Excellent. You have passed the mildly interesting test. You are now wildly interesting. Cool. I think we're going to be linking all of the books and references that we've made uh, throughout yep. the show so that everyone can find them. And because everyone is very mean to Cammy, I'm going to wrap the show up today. I have no idea why, but suddenly it's my responsibility to intro the show and wrap up the show. So I have this to say, you have just had an hour with one of the people that I find most dear in this world. Uh, and it's weird to me because we talked about businessy stuff. We talked about heart stuff. We talked about sci-fi stuff. Um, and I feel like there were far more things that we never talked about than there are that we did talk about. Uh, so in conclusion, if you are a futurist, you're probably born a futurist. I have no idea. How does a wrap up work? How do people you're even doing wrap great. shows up? Just, just keep going. May the fourth be with you. you. You've got it. Just go. May the fourth be with you. I don't think that was the proper wrap up. Uh, we <laughs> talked about a lot of great things today. I'm so glad that you were all here with us. Brian David Johnson, or Brian, as we like to call him, thank you so much. It's always just such a beautiful moment when we're with you. Um, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your energy, and I appreciate your spirit in the world. Thank you both. It was a pleasure to be here. Lovely talking. Two of my favorite people in the world, and I'm very proud to announce that I am the Futurism Residence for Mildly mm -hmm. Interesting People. Yes. Mission accomplished. That's that's all we wanted. That's all we wanted. All right. Everyone, may the fourth be with you. Have a wonderful life and all the stuff. Go watch some Star stuff. Wars movies. Seriously, yeah. go watch some Star Wars movies and like, you know, do your best to do cinnamon roll hair, whatever. You've got and, this. And we're out. Yeah.